0: Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it
1: is. It's time
0: for crime.
1: In this episode, we will discuss the Robert William Fisher's case. We hope to answer the following questions. How do you end up on the FBI's 10 most wanted list? How much money do you take out of your bank account? And have you ever gone to a massage parlor? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up
2: on an episode unless you're a guest.
1: Hey guys, this is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have you guys back. How are you, Miss Kat?
2: Ah, Doing fine, doing fine. Don't really have anything too exciting this week, although the big Thanksgiving's coming up, so it's just been trying to plan menus and figure out what all's going on for the crowd. That's good.
1: That's good. Did you have any weekend plans or did you guys stay home? We stayed home. The oil changed and a new headlight. Nothing too crazy, huh? Nothing too crazy. We went up north to Prescott and we stayed at um, Hotel St. Michael's. And that is the first elevator in the whole state of Arizona. And it was pretty cool. Ah. It still works. You know know what
2: else (laughs) is cool about that? What's that? Is when they uh, went to build that hotel, the guy that built it, he got nothing but grief from the city council. Mm Mm-hmm. They were just on him about every little nitpicky thing. So when he built the hotel, when you're in the town square and you face the hotel and then the side of the building that continues, 69, mm-hmm. uh, when you go down and like you're heading towards the uh, fairgrounds, those two sides of the buildings have like, um, it's it's round, but it's like a little kind of gargoyle face, but they're kind of half human. And mm-hmm. it's, it's said that those caricatures were done mocking the city council members that gave him such a bad time.
1: Oh, yeah. I read that somewhere about that. It had some kind of political, like, comical reference to it. Very
2: historical. Very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And man, when the rodeo comes to
1: town, 4th of July week, that place is insane. Yeah, because it's like that infamous whiskey rose right there. It starts right there. So it starts right there and people get
2: their rooms like a year in advance and they're hanging out the windows and yelling and screaming and waving signs and it's it's wild. But it is very, very beautiful inside.
1: But it gave me like um, asylum feels because of the colors that they have inside because they have that weird lime green like old state hospital <laughs> color.
2: <laughs> yeah, they had some wild colors then.
1: But yeah, it was pretty cool. I like weird history and so Peter's been thinking about he wants to talk a little bit about Arizona history so we decided well let's go check out something ah. different but anyway so let's get going with our case of the week we're really excited to have our listeners jump in on a new case now that we just finished our infamous Diane Downs case so but before we get going i think let's do a recap of last week's question and answer to our listeners what that question is
2: so, our question last week was,
1: what are the four general categories of serial killer motives? So, this is very interesting. So, um, Ronald M. and Stephen T. Holmes, the authors of Serial Murder, they say that there is two categories into four, like two process focus and two art focus that separate serial killers. So, the two process focus serial killers are Uh, hedonistic, which are serial killers that kill for the fun or thrill of it. And then power-oriented serial killers are planners who tend to be psychopaths, but not psychotic. So they usually seek, you know, control, domination. And then the two art-focused serial killers are mission-oriented. So these are serial killers that target specific groups, commonly prostitutes, Jews, Blacks, the homeless, or homosexuals. And then the visionary serial killers are usually the psychotic killings, because of visions and or voices that have instructed them to do so. So that's how they break down the categories. Wow. Pretty interesting. It is, it is. Kind of like a little more facts and details of serial killing. It's like the more I read more of these like trivias and questions and we share it with our listeners, I feel like I'm gaining some awesome knowledge of it.
2: Oh, absolutely, because then you look by that definition and just on the artsy side, it was like just Lori Vallow just popped in my head and I'm like, yeah, she targeted groups, you know, zombies hmm. Definitely. I think she had some plans of somebody helping her with her little thought process, no matter yeah. how
1: misguided. That's going to be a, a good case for us to talk eventually. I had a colleague of mine that asked me, you guys need to do the doomsday couple. And they're like, we want to hear your twist on the whole Mormon side of things. I just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, there was their twist.
2: And then mm-hmm. there's the, the real Mormon church. I mean, that's kind of like, yeah, James Jones, and then let's hear the Catholic side. Uh, No. (laughs) Apples and oranges.
1: Yeah, completely different. But it is a good case to talk about, especially since it's still active and going. And it's a low, I mean, it was local family here. Just
2: how much of it happened here in Arizona
1: is just bonkers. Well, uh, let's go ahead and give our listeners a little short clue of the case. So, I think they're going to like this one. I hope so. I'm hoping so. This one is definitely different. I definitely can tell in your voice that you're excited. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Super excited. Okay, so here it goes, guys. So shortly before 9 a.m. on Tuesday, April 10, 2001, an explosion tore through a South Scottsdale home. In the ruins of the house, police found a family. A mother and her two kids had been killed prior to the explosion. The father was named a suspect in the triple homicide. In case you haven't figured this out cuz it was pretty well known here locally at least. I mean I mean our listeners that, don't, that are not here locally or aren't familiar with some of the cases here in the US was Robert William Fisher. The infamous da da da. And he became really more infamous after he became wanted by the FBI.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So just, you know, a little quick background on Mr. Fisher. He he was born April 13th, 1961 in Brooklyn and then moved out here and went to Saguaro High in Tucson. He served in the U.S. Navy. He became part of the SEALs. It really didn't say like what he did, but it was some sort of like support attached to the SEALs, but he was not successful with that and later left the Navy. And then he worked as a firefighter and he had back problems. So he had to quit being a firefighter. So he wound up in Phoenix working as a respiratory therapist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. Hmm. So in 1987, he uh, married Mary Cooper and they had two children, a son, Bobby, and a daughter, Brittany.
1: I like that some of his background was You know, he was a firefighter. He got into, he was a veteran, right? He was also a very outdoorsy, like outdoorsy kind of man, right? He hunted. He was a fisherman. He was really into.
2: Yes. Very outdoorsy.
1: Outdoorsy, which is pretty interesting. Like he kind of has like a little bit of maybe that stayed with him from being, you know, in the military. Um, I'm not sure if that's what he did growing up. Or he just enjoyed
2: it. And then on the the counterpart of the whole hunting outdoorsy thing,
1: he was very involved in his church. He was very active through, um, what was it, the Scottsdale Baptist Church. He was huge into the men's ministry. But one of the things that kind of like struck me that I didn't really find too exciting about his, like, yes, he was a devoted family man and he was really, was like his awkwardness with his kids and that he was such a control freak. And that his wife had to be a yes, sir, kind of wife.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, on the surface, it's like, oh, you know, medical profession, firefighter, military, what a guy, church going. And then once you break that layer down, narcissistic tool. Sorry, I, these people make (laughs) me insane. So here he is, a control freak. He, all the walls in the house had to be white. There was only a few pictures up. The grandparents couldn't hang anything or display anything in the house. It had to be put away in a a closet or a dresser drawer. She had to be yes, man, no man, or, you know, yes, sir, no, sir. And he was highly embarrassed about his son because his son didn't care to hunt or fish. He wasn't interested in it. Both of his kids played basketball, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. And they were both fairly good at it. But he just could not handle the fact that his son was not into hunting and fishing and the great outdoors.
1: He wasn't that manly, grizzly, bear hunting kind of guy. Yeah. That's what he wanted. He wanted his son to be very similar to him. Yeah, very, very nice guy. But it's kind of scary, you know, and the parents have, I mean, the kids have like a little fear of their father, right? And kind of like how controlling is it—is it really in the home?
2: And part of his issue was the fact that uh, in his early teens, his parents went through a messy divorce and it affected him severely. And so now he's married, He's he's got the kids, you know, they're like in middle school, junior high stuff. And there starts to be tension in the marriage because Mary's about tired of the control what is going on and the control. They're having fights that the neighbors are overhearing. And then through all this... Uh, he's trying to control her with increasingly violent behavior. She's resisting and fighting back. So he went out and had at least a one time affair with a prostitute that he at least admitted to. Uh, there could, I'm sure there was more, but he like admitted to one. And so Mary was very unhappy, uh, like, telling people she was considering a divorce. I'm through with this. He was trying to save the marriage. So they went to counseling at the church. Mm-hmm. You know, he openly admitted the affair, was trying to patch things up and and reel things in.
1: What I think is funny that it that, that it was a massage parlor. It's like put a little more stigma oh. that it was a prostitute in a <laughs> massage did. parlor. I'm like, why? I love massages. Why do people have to put this weird stigma on massage parlors? I know. Just because there are those few Yes. To
2: do other things, but. Additional services. (laughs) It is is possible to have a good massage and just be completely professional and. Yes. Come out feeling good without any sex at all involved.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I think one of the red flags was that I noticed initially was that prior to an incident happening or anything with the family before, you know, we go to the next step was that He seemed to have withdrawn from like a lot of the church activities. Like we said, he was very active as, you know, being a part of the men's ministry, being involved with the church that the pastors made a statement that he started to kind of withdraw. But Mary kept going to church like usual, didn't skip a beat. However, he started to kind of slowly withdraw. And it's like, was he really planning to do something already?
2: Yeah. And it was weird because while all this was going on, they were fighting about sex. They were fighting about money. They were fighting about the kids. He once turned a hose on her when she spoke out of turn. You know, this was just the kind of crazy stuff that he was doing.
1: But he had this weird manipulative, like, control because he said, you know, before they even would consider some type of divorce, he would he would rather have a suicide over a divorce. And so yes, it's like you could tell that intense fear of loss that he was traumatized when his parents got divorced really caused him to have that little fear within his own marriage.
2: I think that he was so afraid of her leaving that he like, overreacted the other way. And Mm -hmm. he was like pushing her. So as much as he wanted her to stay, his actions were pushing her away. Right. Yeah. He had the affair. They were married in 87. And then in 98 was when he had the affair and they were going to uh, marriage counseling and things with them were kind of on again, off again. Mm hmm you know, not really good. They had, the police had interviewed neighbors and, and one of the neighbors had said that, um, she didn't think that Mary and the kids had a very happy life.
1: It was kind of like a, a turning point that kind of goes into the whole incident was that one of the neighbors of the family had stated that the day before the incident that the family had had a large or the couple had a large argument
2: yeah April ninth two thousand and one, you know, where she said, I could do better
1: than you. Mm-hmm. I don't need you. I'm better off without you and those were the, definitely were like the trigger points for him that may have said him
2: right, and it neighbors on each side heard it. That's how loud it was. you know it wasn't like people were up with a glass listening. Both sets of neighbors you know were telling the police they were hearing the same thing because
1: it just got that loud, which is scary. And then it got quiet. Mm-hmm. It got quiet for a few hours, which is scary. It's like the the storm before the or what is it? The quiet calm, the calm before the storm.
2: Yeah. So here they have this hellacious argument, and then it gets pin drop quiet for hours. Mm-hmm. And then we roll into the morning of the tenth, and all of a sudden, kaboom!
1: Yeah, it's a this huge explosion
2: kaboom. that was heard for up to a half a mile and or felt up. To about a half a mile in a circular diameter of that house. That's how many neighbors felt that shake. Yeah, it
1: was it was a, gla- a gas explosion.
2: Yeah, the house just didn't catch on fire. The house exploded. Yeah, and uh, it was a pretty horrific fire. I mean, everybody. Yeah, you know, there was probably a couple of couple of fire departments there, just trying to push back the flames, try to keep it from going to a neighbor's house, mm-hmm. when, you, when you look at the pictures of it, there was the truck in the driveway, like half melted. Oh, yeah. The the heat from this was just really incredible. But when they had finally got the fire out, and they were walking around, there was a gas pipe in the back of the house that they saw disconnected and manipulated.
1: What I thought was crazy is that when the blast, like I guess, was centered was in the living room, where the house had blown, but the explosion was like, so loud, and the brick in the front of the walls, like, it splattered into the neighbor's houses. It was in all different directions. That, to me, was, like, crazy to think about, because it was, like, a ranch-style home. That rubble alone could have taken anybody's life. Can you imagine you were outside walking when that happens, and it, a rub- like piece of brick would have hit you? That would have taken your life, probably.
2: Yeah, it would have been pretty devastating. Plus, as they were going through the rubble, they also found a candle and a mm-hmm. candlestick holder, which they believed was a delay device, that the gas was off, everything was doing its thing, the little candles burn in, you get to the right thing, and kaboom! And oh, look, I'm over here, I have an alibi.
1: Yeah. I was way over here when it happened. I thought the 20-foot high blaze that was like from how high the, the flames were, that alone would be a scary thing to wake up to, and you're like, what is that brightness next to me? That would have freaked me out alone.
2: Oh, yeah. And then you're outside like, how in the heck is my house not on fire? I mean, thank God it's not. But yeah, you're just watching all this. So this huge fire, they get it under control. They go in. They find the gas lines manipulated. They're sifting through. And as they're sifting through, they start finding bodies. Mm -hmm. So they find the kids and they find Mary. And so the kids' throats were cut ear to ear. And then Mary's throat was cut and she had a bullet hole in the back of her head.
1: And Mary was 38. Brittany was 12 years old. And Bobby was 10 at the time of this incident. And just snuffed
2: out. And then I'm sure the house was set on fire. A, it gave him a delay, a time to get out, a possible mm-hmm. alibi. But I think he was thinking
1: that the fire would cover up the crime. Yeah. It burned the bodies and not be able to find.
2: Oh, I went out for donuts and the house just blew up. Well, I don't know what happened. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, however, it was like the center of the house and if the kids were off to the side in the bedroom and I'm not really sure where Mary was in the house, but they were the bodies were protected enough because the the majority of it mm-hmm. was the center of the house, but they the bodies were protected enough that they were able to tell that their throats were slashed and there was, you know, a bullet hole on the skull. When
1: I read that that that's what he did to their throats, it's like, okay, now we know why he got quiet after the the crazy argument, right? Mm-hmm. And second, it also made me think of Jodi Aries, right? What she did to Mr. Yep, Alexander. That. that was the first image that came to my mind was I was thinking of that.
2: And when I was reading that, the first thing that popped into my head was if I can't have you, no one can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It makes more sense in my little mind to kill
1: you than to have you walk away from me and leave me. He, he couldn't handle the The threat of the wife intending to have a divorce and probably threatened him to say, "Hey, I'll take your kids away too."
2: Yeah. So I don't know loss of control. If he didn't know what he would do without them, mm-hmm. that emasculated him in some way.
1: So then now all these detectives and firemen are like, "Okay, this is obviously a family. So where's dad at? Right? Like, I get, that would be the first question I would be asking." We found three bodies. Right. Where's the father?
2: Exactly. So everybody starts coming to that conclusion real quick mm-hmm. and they're looking around. Of course, there's the charred pickup truck in the driveway. And they were like, oh, husband and wife, two vehicles. Neighbors were like, Yeah, the wife had a red forerunner. Oh, Mary's Mary's car is missing. And the dog. And and the dog, blue, yeah. So, but the car's missing, the husband's missing, and the dog.
1: Dun dun dun. So then I, I like it was like what four days later. It's April 14th. All of a sudden, they're like, okay, he disappeared at the time of the murders, and he was the only suspect. So then they instructed to do a statewide bulletin to get him arrested or just to find him, right? Couldn't find him.
2: Yeah, he be, he became a person of interest still at this point. They wanted to know what was going on. So we have the argument. We have it really quiet for, for quite a few hours. We get into the next morning. House blows up. And a few hours after that, he's seen on the atm footage pulling money out mm-hmm. with the forerunner like right over his shoulder in the parking lot and he pulled out it was like 289 dollars. Yeah, it was 280
1: kind of odd number
2: and then gone you know how long does it take to pull money out of the atm so that's you know how long he was there three minutes five minutes walked back to the forerunner and
1: into the night you know what's funny i just and I'm like a big number person or whatever it didn't cross my mind, but he pulled out two hundred and eighty dollars, right? So Mary was thirty eight. Brittany was twelve, and Bobby was ten, right? So the last digits make two hundred and eighty. So twelve the thirty eight and 10. I'm like, maybe that's why he pulled out 280. Just a speculation here. Just an idea. Just throwing it out there, people. <laughs> yeah. it just I don't it... know. Cause you know, that, that really fits with the case. So that I wonder if anybody's ever thought of that, but just throwing it out there. <laughs> Could be a huge part of this as it moves on. Why 280, right? I know just right now, just in my head, I just thought, okay, why 280? Even if it was
2: 300, where are you going to go on 300?
1: I'm just going off of like numbers that I see that it, rep- it was a repeated number that I caught.
2: I like that. So, for the number, statistical, conspiracy theorist, yeah, yeah. work Especially on that. Especially because I'm the
1: conspiracy theory girl, right? You always bring up
2: the conspiracy. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I know, but now that you put
1: the numbers to it, it's
2: like, wow, that makes a lot more
1: sense. Yeah, so his last physical evidence, right? They're found about their wonderbouts is when they end up going to find the forerunner and the dog at Tonto National Forest, which is like hundreds of miles north of Scottsdale. So,
2: yeah, uh, that was six days later on the 20th. So they find the forerunner pulled off of 87 is the main highway uh, from the East Valley up into a Payson area. And so that's Tonto National Forest. So there's a lot of areas that you could just pull off and get on these dirt forest service roads and get off into the woods. And so they found it about a quarter mile off of the highway and it was just parked Mm -hmm. and the dog was still with the car. Mm -hmm. Just left there. You know, they, they did find on the passenger side, the door was open with a little human excrement pile and that's it.
1: You know, he left the dog. So it's still, where is Robert Fisher today? Yeah. So then on July 19th, the Arizona Superior Court sent out a state arrest warrant that was issued by the phoenix charging him with the three accounts of first degree murder and one account of arson and so then he was declared a fugitive and Mm -hmm. there was a federal arrest warrant on his on him by the u.s district court of the district of arizona charging him with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and then in june 29 2002 which is almost a year later he was named by the FBI as the 475th fugitive to be placed on the 10th most wanted list.
2: Yes, and so much speculation. This, this is as big as Bigfoot. <laughs> so when they, the area that he left the, the forerunner at, when you get just back in there, it's not even that far. It's not like you have to like hike for miles and miles. Mm-hmm. That particular area, now there's a whole bunch of area that's forest service all up and down. I mean, you can go from Payson all the way up into the White Mountains and have all this different forest areas, but where he left the Forerunner, when I mean, you get out and you walk in there a little bit, it's the one area that has a bunch of caves and like semi-subterranean caves. Mm-hmm. So you can get in these caves and kind of go down and wiggle your way around and they kind of connect. So like you could go in one of the cave entrances and you could come out two miles away and be completely underground and then pop up somewhere else. And so Arizona, for whatever reason, has a lot of blunkers uh, And those are people that love to hang out and investigate and Play around in the caves. There's a very, very active group, and in fact, one of the officers that I worked with at Perryvale, uh, he was huge into splunking, and it was his little splunking group that actually found Karchner Caverns hmm. those years ago. They were found by amateurs. So there we have. There's a lot of caving stuff that goes on in Arizona for whatever reason. But anyway, so all these cavers now are here and they're all down in there and they're the ones telling law enforcement how all these caves are connected. And he
1: could have really gone any direction. So another weird speculation speculation I have Mm -hmm. because of where he was like, left at and stuff. What if, just hear me out, what if he found the lost Dutchman's gold mine? And that's why he only needed $280 because he knew where this money was at. And he escaped and has all this money. Wow. And that's 150 miles north of where
2: everyone speculates the lost Dutchman Mayan is in the superstitions. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that be weird if people have spent over 125 years digging and dying in the superstitions looking for gold? And it was actually up there in the cave.
1: Look yeah. theory. Yeah. <laughs> Today's my conspiracy coming out, but that's what I thought of immediately. Was like when you're talking about the caves, I was like, "What if?" Maybe that's why he didn't need the money because he found this money, this gold.
2: Yeah, but now you've got the cavers with their own conspiracy theories. So you've got a group of the cave people saying, "Oh, well, he got down in there and he ran out of oxygen and he died."
1: They, you would have found a body by then.
2: You would think, because let me tell you how many people have been in those caves. Or go looking for him and anything else. Yeah. There's, I mean, 20 years, they have not found a finger bone. Mm -mm. The other, there was another group of cavers that said, oh, well, he talked about suicide. He went in and killed himself. Again, nobody.
1: He also was like, kind of had that narcissistic characteristic. So he wouldn't kill himself and have nobody find his body.
2: Well, exactly. And then they're like, well, if he did that, whether he died of the oxygen or he died by his own hand, the animals would have carried away his bones. Well, true. But again, all these people climbing in all these rocks, even if animals take bones and they, they walk it 100 feet over here and they drop a bone and then they go over here, I, there would be something. Somebody in 20 years would have found something, I think, if there was something to find. Right.
1: Well, I think that we got some good additional like we gave we gave our listeners a little like breadcrumbs so that we can finish off with part <laughs> two. But as you can tell, part two is going to be a little bit more of breaking down some of these like facts about Robert a little bit about just some conspiracies, you know, because I got to talk about those and yeah, just some some potential sightings that they've Potentially saw him at. And so... Some of, some of his behavior and what he was doing in the woods weeks before this. Correct. And so we hope to have our listeners listen in because I think that's going to be really exciting to to share that and kind of give you guys an update of where it stands at now. Like, is he still the top 10 most wanted people on, F- on the FBI list? We'll find out. Yes. But I'd like to make sure if you guys... Know of any information re- regarding his whereabouts, we urge everybody to make sure to call the Scottsdale Police Department at 480 312 2716, or you can contact the Phoenix FBI office at 602 279 5511 as this is still an ongoing investigation. So,
2: yes, so if you have any tips, please, you know, please call in, reach out to them. So, they
1: are still actively working the case
2: 20 years later,
1: yes. But before we leave, Kat, if you could give our listeners the question of the of the week. Ooh, da-da-da.
2: This week's question is, are most serial killers legally insane?
1: Hmm. I want to say no, but you know, what do I know? <laughs> I learned with our listeners. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so and as our uh, as we always say, make sure to listen and follow us on um, all the social media platforms. You can go to our website. And you can share our podcast on all the different platforms. So make sure to share with your friends if you love listening to us and do share and like and subscribe and all those good things. I don't know what else happens on social media anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so outdated. But next week's episode, we'll do the continuation of Robert William Fisher.
2: Yeah. So please, you know, follow us on the social media and please, please check out our website. It's all brand new. It looks really nice. Want everybody to stay safe out there. Yes. Take care
1: and be kind and we'll chat with you guys soon always all right we look forward to take it take care take care everybody and bye
2: bye
0: Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five star review on your favorite podcasting software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime One or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623 292 5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts, Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney, for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Nymph for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Nymph for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.